Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast brought to you by SME Strategy. Our goal on the Strategy and Leadership Podcast is to bring you practical and actionable tools that you can implement with your teams right away. My name is Anthony Taylor and I'll be your host. Each episode, I'll interview a senior leader or a thought leader that will help you elevate your ability to lead people and drive your organization's strategy forward. Our partner is Cascade Strategy. They're our favorite tool for tracking and executing strategic plans, providing visibility for your entire team, and helping everybody have insight into where you're going and what you need to do to get there. If you're looking to improve your strategy execution, visit smestrategy.net slash cascade for a link for a free 90-day trial so you can see for yourself if you enjoy it and it helps your team move forward. So with that, I want to thank you again for joining us, and we'll get into today's guest. I want to welcome today's guest, Lauren Harrell, who is the Director and Head of Commodities at Chatham Financial. Lauren, how's it going this morning? It's going great. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm super excited to be able to chat with you just for everybody listening, because I'm sure you're so interested. We got connected through Ryan, who is one of our past guests in Pennsylvania, and we chat for a while. He's like, you know, you got to meet this gal because she's like awesome. In our first phone call, we got along like a house on fire. So I'm just I'm really (laughs) excited. And at the time, which was a couple of weeks ago, you were working on some cool projects. So maybe you can uh, give us a little bit of introduction into what keeps you busy and then we'll we'll get into it from there. Sure. So uh, in my day job, I do uh, a couple of different things. So at Chatham Financial, I work on our financial institutions team, and we are a global debt and derivatives advisory firm. And part of my time, I spend uh, managing and overseeing our commodity hedging business for banks, large community and regional banks. And then I also am working on a B2B SaaS risk management platform build out. So I'm overseeing a group of developers, a group of testers, and we're designing this software for our clients to use for balance sheet risk management. So it's a really interesting time for me. It's a project I haven't necessarily undertaken before. So I'm stretching myself a little bit and really excited to learn about the product space and get in there as a product manager, product owner, and design software. It's it's really a fun time. That's awesome. Well, that was one of the things when we were getting into it, it was this big project. So, you know, I really want to be mindful of not giving any like secret sauce away, but what's the experience been having to like jump in there? It sounds like manage a bunch of different stakeholders, work with different, potentially the board and other groups. Like what's that experience been like for you so far? Sure. So I, I kind of look at, at work based on a, a time horizon, right? There's tactical elements, there's strategic elements, and part of my job is is very tactical. It's getting in there looking at business requirements. And because capital markets and derivatives is very specific, very niche, some of those requirements are very, very, very detailed. You know, how many decimal places do we need this one field on this one part of our user interface? to allow? What are the error messages? So I can get very much in the weeds, but then also on the product management side, it's my responsibility to manage up the chain and manage expectations upward. And it's vision, it's strategy, it's the direction of the product and how are we doing overall? So I I kind of liken my job to those two different time horizons. 
is very short-term, immediate, tactical, and then the ability to zoom out, manage the entire project, map out where we're going in the future, and then communicate up the chain to my bosses, the CEO, and other folks that sit on the board as to where we see the vision of this overall platform and product going in the future. So it's a very interesting challenge. I think you know the task switching between tactical and strategic, sometimes folks can have a difficult time with that. I, I struggle with that sometimes as well. So it's an interesting challenge for me, for sure. Hmm. Have you found any tips or tricks or any sort of things that work to be able to bridge that gap between the operational and the strategic? And then also recognizing that you probably have multiple audiences that you have to cater to simultaneously. Absolutely. So inside of my firm, I'm probably working with maybe six or seven different, for the lack of a better term, maybe silos, if you will. And understanding your audience is critical. For example, I need to communicate very in a very specific language to the developers and the testers. Because when I say one word in the domain of expertise, it means one thing. But outside of that domain of expertise, it means something else. So I would say a big tip is to know who your audience is and how you need to communicate with them. The developers and testers, they want a lot of detail. They want to know very specific requirements. When I am communicating up the chain to my boss or to folks that sit on the board, it's very high level strategic. They want to know the risks. They want to know, well, if this doesn't succeed, what's our backup? What do you anticipate the cost to be? So it's much higher level questions, but you have to be able to go three and four questions deep on any particular topic. So I would say the big tip for me is know who your audience is. I think that's critical. Like, how do you prepare for that? It sounds like it's been a, lear a learning journey. And that's one of the things we sort of bonded over when we first connected, like the ability to bridge those two gaps. Are you the kind of person that is super process oriented that you're like, okay, today I'm bringing my board book and here's all the board information I have. Mm -hmm. Or is it, you know, more ad hoc, you just like sensing the room, understanding who you're talking to, like what kind of processes or systems do you have in place to maintain that successfully? Sure. So I've been with Chatham for seven years. So I, I have kind of that context and history. And so I know the groups fairly well. I would say a big tip for me as well is to manage your calendar. And in this day and age where we're, most of us are working from home, there is this blurred boundary of you're available all the time. You're available for a Zoom or a call or an instantaneous, you know, Slack chat. I actually block off my calendar specific times of the day to focus on certain things. And so for me personally, it's easy for me to compartmentalize certain things. And so I will block out time to focus on the tactical and the detail. And my brain will get into that rhythm. And I know that those are the areas I have to focus on. And then another time, I'll block off time to be strategic, high level, seeing out into the future and allow those juices to kind of flow. I find for me personally, it's difficult to go back and forth immediately in those two time horizons. And so I have to give myself the time to immerse in one particular area and flesh it out. I just find that it's easier for me to focus that way. And so I'm very deliberate with how I, I put my calendar together. I also block off time for lunch. I know that sounds kind of like a no-brainer, but before I started doing that, you know, my, my calendar would get completely full and I would be late to meetings because I had to use the restroom. And I thought, well, this is crazy. I haven't eaten. I haven't used the restroom. I, I need to figure this out. And so I block off my time during lunch as well in order to give me the time away from the computer to regroup a little bit 
Sometimes I'll read a book that's nothing related to my job or I'll listen to a podcast or I'll watch a 30 minute show just to kind of reset. And I have found that that's really been helpful for me as well. That's awesome. And if you're watching on, on YouTube or in the webinar today, like if that <laughs> resonates with you, because I think that that's one of those things, especially in 2021, where we're in these like Zoom meetings, we don't have that like that break to walk to meetings or like a 10 or 20 minute commute when you got to go somewhere else, that that full bandwidth is really there and, and being able to manage that successfully is key even just for, for longevity, because you'll burn yourself out. And I don't know if the full experience of working remotely, like if it's really like shown its head. I mean, in the financial industry, how has COVID impacted that? And have people been able to manage successfully? Or is it still a little bit on edge from an organizational perspective? I would say my observation is that we've been able to manage it fairly successfully. I think Chatham overall has done a fantastic job. And you know, the, the teams are really in a rhythm now. And so it's interesting that now we feel like we're in a rhythm. We've got our processes down. And for those of us in the financial industry, we're very highly regulated. And so there are some things that we are operating under that are uh, regulatory relief. So, you know, a lot of traders, you know, typically can't trade from home. The CFTC doesn't allow certain individuals to, to be unmonitored and things like that. So we're operating under certain regulatory relief. And at some point that's going to end. And so there is also this limited horizon that we're looking at where all of our processes are going to change again. And in our office in particular, everything is open. We have all standing desks. There are no offices, no cubicles. It's a wide open floor. So it's very collaborative. And it just remains to be seen, you know, what those environments, not just, you know, where, where I work, but just in, in general, how that is going to play out. Are folks going to feel comfortable coming back and sitting right next to their neighbor? I know, obviously, the vaccine discussion has been really, really critical. There are some folks that have gotten it. Some folks will not get it. How do you manage that? I would say from a boardroom perspective, those are definitely topics of conversation that are on point right now. And they kind of fall into this environmental social governance ESG type of a topic where human capital management, talent management has really been to the forefront for the last 12, 13 months since we, we've been in COVID. It's definitely top of mind. One of the things that I really took away from what you shared, both in terms of getting into that, well, the word you used was rhythm. And it also sounded like, you know, for your meetings with stakeholders, for your meetings with the board, as the teams work together, like being able to establish a rhythm, being able to establish a cadence, being able to create some sort of continuity is, is part of that, you know, what makes success in the teams that you've worked in. So again, not to say it's for everybody, but like that rhythm gives you that flow. Even if it's, hey, my rhythm is I'm going to have a lunch. It helps keep you effective. Did I get that right? Yeah, I think that's right on. I think that when you're at home, I mean, we have the benefit of looking professional up at the top, but wearing our pajama bottoms on the bottom and our fuzzy slippers, and you can just feel a lot more <laughs> relaxed, which is great in one sense. But for me, I also find the the little bit of attention of being in the office and having to present yourself a certain way, carry yourself a certain way, you know, physically being present in meetings, there is a structure to your day. And if you're like me, where you're a creature of habit, 
habit and your patterns and your processes that you have, you know, operated under for a very long time no longer exist in this work from home environment. And so for me personally, I know way I, the way I interact with my teams or the way the teams collectively interact with each other, we've had to come up with new norms. We've had to come up with those new patterns and how do we collaborate where before I could just walk to your desk or we could have an impromptu meeting in the hallway. We have to be very deliberate with how we exchange information and how we target our conversations. And it, it was a learning curve. I mean, obviously with everybody else around the world, we, we went to work from home overnight. We were very fortunate that we had the technology to do it and it was a really seamless transition, but it took a little bit to get into that rhythm. And I think, you know, especially folks that have young children who had to monitor them on their iPads and distance learning. It was pretty rough up until, you know, maybe three or four months after after the pandemic started. It's nice to be in that groove, but uh, it's, it's going to change here again. So we'll just have to adapt and be flexible. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we talk really about the operational side of your sort of day-to-day work. I know that in your spare time, you have, there's no such thing as spare time, folks. I'm doing air quotes, board work. You work on boards. So tell me about your experience, I guess, in your career in boards, and then I'll ask you a question from there. Sure. So I've been doing board work for about 10 years. I, I sat on my first board in my early 20s and really enjoyed the strategy aspect of it, the risk management aspect of it. And I like working on business, not necessarily in the business. And I think that's a, a distinction when, when you sit on the board. Your role is not to be the operator. Your role is oversight. And part of that oversight is curiosity and inquiry and understanding where management is coming from. And so I gravitated towards board service because naturally my skill set and my strengths are very strategic, long-term, time horizon type of thinking. So it just naturally fit with what the value that I brought to the table. And going on 10 years, I currently sit on a large organization, a health and human services agency. Agency out of Philadelphia, about 120 million in budget, very large. I'm a part of their M&A committee, finance. Uh, I do have a CPA. I'm a CFA charter holder. And I've been in finance and, and banking and accounting for going on 17, 18 years now. So that's a really good use of, of my skill set in a lot of these boards. I do serve on a hospital foundation board, which has been instrumental, believe it or not, in just understanding COVID and hearing what's going on in the medical field. And I'm very, very lucky that I can kind of tune out some of the noise and get my medical information from the Penn Medicine staff and the CEOs of the hospitals and the chief medical officers. So I've been very fortunate to be able to receive unfiltered medical information that way. So I'm very grateful to uh, Chester County Hospital, who is a part of the the Penn Medicine system. Those are kind of the, the, the high level boards that I sit on right now. And I'm, I'm really enjoying uh, the board work for sure. Mm, that's awesome. And I don't know if you've experienced this because it sounds like the boards that you work on are very well run because they need to be. Have you seen any differences between, we'll call them more immature boards as in there may be early in the formative stages versus the ones that are high performing because they need to? Have you seen like what makes that difference? 
absolutely. I think I've, I've served on large organizations that have a lot of infrastructure. They have a lot of support. They have staff that help support the board. Um, there's a corporate secretary that does the minutes and scheduling the meetings. And I've also served on boards where the budget is a half a million and it's much smaller and they're community-based organizations that are, you know, economic development focused, main street program focused. And I would say the difference really is that the size of the organization and the resources available. So when you have a smaller organization, you have a limited amount of staff. And when you bring community members that are a part of a board, we all have great intentions and we wanna roll up our sleeves and we wanna help and do everything that we possibly can. And it really blurs the line between who are the operators and who is the board. And so I've seen that as a struggle for sure, where you have 12 different board members who all wanna reach in and help because we have big hearts and this is why we volunteer our time. But the receiving end of that, you have to think about the executive director and the staff, they look at the board as their bosses. And which is true, um, specifically for the executive director, we're giving them, you know, feedback and compensation reviews and, you know, things of that nature. And when you have 12 different board members that are emailing the executive director, maybe they don't view it as helpful or suggestive. They view it as an edict coming down from the board member. And so what I've seen work really well especially in the times of, of COVID, streamlining that communication is very helpful. So the chair of the board or the chair of a committee, making sure that the executive director knows like who are they really taking the direction from? You have all of the input from the board, you're collectively you know, having a conversation, but then you have very limited delivery points as to who is actually delivering information to the executive director. I'll give you another example. I was the chair of a food bank at the start of the pandemic and overnight our services, the volume increased by 50 or 60%. And because of the amount of stress on the workers and people were working, you know, just insane hours, we completely narrowed down the, the communication and all communication went through me. Not to be the bottleneck, not to be controlling about it, but it was too difficult for the staff and the CEO of the food bank to receive all of these emails when he didn't have the answers yet either. And so streamlining that communication was really effective in that type of a, a crisis response mode, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Which everybody can <laughs> empathize and sympathize oh, yeah. with. Yeah, <laughs> where we're at. And that's the time, like when you look at different levels of leadership and the kind of leaders that are required at different times. You know, sometimes you need that visionary leader that's very engaging and gets a lot of people buy, bought in. And sometimes you kind of need a leader who's going to take charge, make some not friends, but really like for the sake of the organization moving forward. One thing that struck with me as you talked about streamlining the communications, and as everybody knows, I like weird metaphors, is I was watching that F1 docu-series. Have, have you seen it? Driven to Shanghai? I haven't, but tell oh, me about it. It's awesome. So they go through and, and they show all of these F1 teams and they're like day to day sort of behind the scenes. But then there's like the guy in the headset who's like, okay, you need to speed up or you need to slow down or this far around. And in this last episode I watched, no spoilers, by the way, he said like something, 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 period. And then he said, question, period. Because they had the subtitles. So it was just neat because he was stating what he was asking and then actually confirmed that it was a question. How I saw that relating is that the difference between, hey, is this information? Is this an FYI or is this a directive? 
having that really be clear, I think, is both important, but also removes confusion on anybody's part so that how we're working together is clear. Does that resonate yep. with you? Does that make sense? A hundred percent. And I like the phrase ruthlessly eliminating ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And in times of crisis, sometimes you really have to be that specific. And obviously with the pandemic, none of us have experienced this before. And so the board really had to come off the bench. And I think there are times where the board and management, executive management, it's going to be a lot more collaborative, a lot more, you know, crisis management. And, and you don't operate that way all the time. But at that particular point, we had the executive committee, the chair, the vice chair, the treasurer, the secretary, and the CEO and kind of their second in command. And we were on conversations regularly with them and we became a trusted strategic asset even more so than we already were. Because at that point, the CEO was coming to us and saying, well, here's what we're thinking. We, we may want to do this. We may want to do that. Here's what we're seeing in the community. And we were there as a sounding board to say, okay, that sounds good. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? What's next after that? So if we make this move, we shut down these programs or you know throttle back on these programs and put resources over here, what does it mean for this over here? So that's where the strategy started to come in. And that was really difficult to do when you had to shift pretty dramatically, I think, to a tactical response. And there was certainly a period of time where you had to be very tactical and your input to the executive team was very tactical in nature, but everybody around the room kind of understood these are not normal times. So it's okay that we are not sticking strictly in our lanes. And that's why I think, again, the streamlining of the communication was really helpful to kind of filter out some of that information to be a little more helpful for the executive team so they could make decisions without a bunch of noise. Yeah, absolutely. So I heard that there was a big shift in terms of the strategy that you need to sort of move it around and just like get into it. We, we got a question from the chat here. If, have you ever had an experience where a board member was initially hostile to a certain strategy and that anything that, and I see you take a gulp there. So you're like, okay, yes. <laughs> so any experience there, how you dealt with it, what you learned and obviously without naming names or anything like that? Sure. So I've I've had a couple of experiences with uh, hostile board members. And, you know, to be honest with you, I am personally not threatened by that. And I think from a board perspective, you're there to have different perspectives at the table. And so I found just when I was a chair of board in the past, I would go to those people who I knew were going to object because it would help me think through what the objections were. And it rounded out, I think, the decision process. And so for me personally, I'm, I'm not afraid of that type of uh, discussion. You hope that board members are collegial in their hostility, if you will. And if it becomes disruptive, I think, you know, I've had instances where I've had to take board members aside and talk with them and say, hey, you know, I really appreciate your feedback on these particular points. I think as the receiver of these messages, you know, the tone in which it was delivered, I received the message this way. And I think certain members of the board also received the message this way. Let's talk about, you know, what the intentions were or, you know, why this might be a sticking point for you. So I think when you have that type of a situation, one, I think you can welcome the opposite perspective. I think you definitely want that in the boardroom. 
consensus all the time, I don't think is is healthy. I think you have to have a certain amount of that friction in, in the conversation. And I think it leads to better decision making. I think right now, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion is a massive topic for the boardroom right now. And for me, it doesn't make sense to have diverse perspectives around the table if you're all going to agree all of the time. Second, I think it's also important to know that not every decision needs to be unanimous. I have seen boards, especially nonprofit boards, really struggle with that. You have to vote according to your conscience and what you believe is the best for the organization based on the information that's been presented to you. I have certainly found myself in positions where I have voted against large strategic initiatives because I felt like the organization didn't have the resources, we didn't have the processes available, we didn't have the staff available, and embarking on something that was not going to be successful from a culture, a resource standpoint, was just not in the best interest of the organization. And if you don't have the right culture or the right resources, you can have the best strategy on the planet, but there's no way to implement it. So hopefully that that answers that question. But I, I welcome the varying viewpoints in the boardroom. I find them helpful. I seek them out. And ultimately, I think it leads to better decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I think and that's like the diversity of it is being able to get those perspectives. You want that disagreement isn't personal. It's about like the issue typically. Sorry, go ahead, Mark. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, as board members, we're there to provide oversight for the betterment of the organization. And so it's it's not personal. And so I have found by and large, most board members realize that and they don't they don't make it personal. So that's good. I think it also gets into, you know, the skill sets that you need as a board member. You know, there are certain folks that really want to be in management. They really want to manage the organization. And as a board member, that's not our job. And so it can be very difficult. When you have some folks around the board table that are pulling you constantly into the, hey, let's get in there and operate the business type of a mindset. And when I find that taking place, depending on my role on the board, I will approach the chair or the head of the committee and say, hey, you know, I'm finding these things to be, they they lead us off track a little bit. How can we approach this in a different way? Or how can we ask the question to elicit the type of responses that we need. So for example, some things that we've implemented on some boards, it's difficult to get into a board meeting with 18 board members and brainstorm. It's just not productive. And so in talking with executive management, I said, hey, you know what might be helpful? Why don't we try, you come to us with two questions. Hey, board members, I need your input on this particular question. So you're putting some guardrails around the conversation. And when folks start to veer off course a little bit, you can course correct and say, I think that's great information, but we're here to talk about this one particular piece of information. It's very small in scope. We need input here. And so it gives executive management the latitude to kind of pull people back. And I find it's helpful to present that in advance on an agenda. So that's a tool that I think is heavily used and maybe not used as effectively as, as it can be, but it's a great tool as a board director. Yeah, I really just want to highlight the focus. That's what I'm really hearing, like being successful, engaging your stakeholders, being successful and engaging your board and being on a board is to, you know, put frames, have very, very specific asks, very specific wants and very specific communication. And then the other thing that I heard in response to the question that was in the chat was 
have that communication, put a guardrail on that communication, but also it brings back in that ruthlessly removing ambiguity. I heard you say this. Others heard you say this. Is this what you meant? And it's an opportunity for us to discuss and get, and what I see is the biggest gap with frustration. And if you have hostility, it's uncertainty or different expectations or understanding. So if you see one thing and I see one thing, that there's maybe a gap that we need to bridge. And you did that expertly through that that communication. Anything else you want to add about that? No, I, I think your your assessment is right on. And when there is that ambiguity left, if the board meeting is a brainstorm session and a lot of different ideas get tossed out, at the end of a two-hour board meeting, the executive director looks around and says, well, what is my directive? What do you actually want me to do? What do you want me to report on? What metrics are important to you? What does success look like? Because they are getting compensated based on them hitting their targets. I mean, all of us have some sort of compensation review process at some point, right? And so you have to think of it from those terms where I certainly appreciate when my boss comes to me and says, Lauren, the expectation is this project will be done in six months. Okay, great. I have an endpoint and I know I have to back into what my timeline looks like and how to deliver, you know, chunks of value to get to the whole of the project in six months. So giving people that roadmap of what to expect, I think is really critical because if the board has expectations and those expectations are not communicated, or they're internally inconsistent. So for example, I was on a board where two of the metrics were um, to increase diversity in the staff, but to reduce turnover. So that's an internally inconsistent metric to hit, right? So if you don't have a diverse staff to begin with, how can you gain diversity without increasing turnover? You're going to have to cycle through some of your staff and bring in more diversity. So those two metrics were at odds with one another and the manager was left with her arms in the air saying, well, which one do you want me to focus on? Because I can't do both. So while I think some folks approach board work as, you know, it's only one or two hours and we don't have to put a lot of thought into it, I find that board work can be very, I don't want to say process heavy because I I don't mean to suggest that it's very operational in nature. But for example, the easiest one to use is compensation. It is a year-round process. You have your budget season that kind of comes into play. And with the budget, what kind of metrics are you going to give to the executive director to hit? Are they reasonable based on your strategic goals? And then you have your, you know, review timeline and, you know, the self-review and the 360 feedback, and then you give the review and then you set the goals for the next year. And then you review those goals. It is an annual cycle that you go through. It's not a one and done meeting. And so I think folks have to understand that certain parts of board work can be very governance process heavy, depending on the area that you're focusing on. Yeah, like being able to recognize, well, the role, but I also think that one of the things, going back to that guardrail idea, those processes, those systems are in place to protect the organization, to protect the board, and to actually like steer the organization, whichever way it is. So those those are in there on purpose, not by accident. Agreed. And things like the bylaws, I find that a lot of organizations don't look at their bylaws. And so one of the things that I do when I come onto a board is I comb through the bylaws pretty thoroughly and I I can pull out parts of the bylaws that suggest process. So board recruitment or, you know, elections or things like that. 
And I, I asked the question, is this on paper or is this actually operationally how we work on this board? And then I look at the charters of the committees and I look at the responsibilities, the roles, and I say, is this what is actually happening or are we doing it in a different way? And so part of those guardrails, like legally, you have fiduciary duties as a board member. And part of those guardrails are there to make sure that you are sticking within the lanes of your fiduciary duties, duty of loyalty, duty of care. And part of that is, you know, your, your finances. That's an easy one, right? So if you don't have budget review, if you don't have budget approval, if you aren't looking at your financials, if you're not giving a treasurer's report or hearing at the board level some sort of financial update and you just assume that things are going well, you are violating that, that duty of care. And so those guardrails are there for a reason. If you think about banks and the regulations that banks are under, I mean, there are pages and pages of things that you have to do as a bank board director just to tick the boxes from a regulatory standpoint. So you have to operate under those constraints and you're really required to in order to fulfill your fiduciary duty. Yeah, I love that. And one thing I just want to uh, highlight from a couple sort of points back around that, that ambiguity, that clarity, that making sure that the directives are there and then the purpose of a meeting, like that applies to boards, but that also applies to leadership teams. You can disagree with your leadership team. And we made a video recently about toxic positivity that like, if all you do is agree, you're just causing more problems. You're just kicking the can down the line instead of actually addressing that thing moving forward. And, you know, we, we facilitate these type of conversations and it's not until you sort of dig in that you realize there really is disagreement. We've just been sort of doing the bobblehead thing, nodding in agreement. Well, I'm doing right now. <laughs> but I know you're agreeing with me, so that's okay. But that people just agree for the sake of agreeing because they don't sure. want to disagree to be seen as argumentative, I guess. So we're, we're winding down here, but we, I do have a couple questions from our participants. So I'll, I'll put them both out. So one is... Do you recommend any books on the framework of boards? Anything that comes to mind, any board books you've read or any board governance guides you've read? Oh, goodness. So there is one by Jen Wolf, and it's called, I think, Disruption in the Boardroom. She is a digital director. She's amazing. She is an instructor at the National Association of Corporate Directors, which is the, you know, the biggest organization for directors here in the United States. And I, th I thought her book was fantastic. There's also one by, that Dillard put out, Brian, Brian Stafford and uh, Dottie Schindlinger. And I think that one's called Digital in the Boardroom. I'm not going to get the titles right. I apologize, but I would certainly look up those two books. They're fantastic. And what I appreciate about them is it's not just high level platitudes. It's here's how you would actually implement this. So for example, we hear things like, oh, well, we'll we will use a board skills matrix. Okay, well, what does that mean? What skills should be on the matrix? How do you how do you go about actually surveying people? What's important, not just for now, what do we have on the board now, but what do we need three and five years down the line? And how do we tie that into board recruitment? So again, there's this whole process around the board skills matrix. How often do we look at it? When do we review it? What do we have to approve it? What skills should we take off? What should we add? There's a process around it. And those books really get into the meat of how do you actually utilize these tools? So I find that to be really helpful. So those are two that I would recommend. Diligent has a podcast uh, that's fantastic. The Corporate Director Podcast, I listen to that. NACD has a podcast, I listen to that. 
So th those are two, two of the ones that, that I really follow from a governance perspective. And then uh, Boardroom Bound with Alexander Lowry. He's great. So there's a lot of good governance podcasts out there. But uh, those are the two books, uh, going back to the original question, uh, that I would, I would recommend. Awesome. Jason, if we can put that in the show notes, and then we'll be sure to drop it in our community. And we actually just launched a community to discuss these kind of things because there's so much good information and so many great people working on this cool stuff. So be, try to put it all in uh, as close to a central place. So one more question for you, Lauren. Do you have any specific parts of the bylaws that you look for or any specific parts of the bylaws that you specifically look for when you're reviewing them going into your you know new stage as a board member? So I like to look at the the roles of the board. So if those are spelled out, like the chair, the treasurer, things like that, I like to see what are the specific duties that are listed there? Is there a specific process to electing those individuals? Are there specific term limits assigned to those individuals? So for example, if you're telling me that a term limit is two years for a treasurer, but you have a three-year overall term limit as a board director, if I'm in my last year on the board and you're going to elect me as treasurer, I can't fulfill that two years unless I'm going to be nominated for another term. It's, it's things like that, uh, looking at what the standing committees are and what the responsibilities are assigned to each of those committees. What I love to see in bylaws is, to be quite honest, something a little more general, because the more you put in your bylaws, that is your governing document. And if you are not operating based on your governing document, you are violating your bylaws. And that's never a good thing. So I like to see bylaws that are less prescriptive, that give you some flexibility as the board to be nimble where you need to be nimble. I also look at things like approval limits. So are there certain thresholds that the executive team or strictly speaking nonprofit boards, the executive director can't spend over a certain limit without going to the board? Who has signing authority on the documents? Is it just the executive management or does the chair and the treasurer have signing authority? So it's things like that, that, that I try to just get a sense of how the roles are established, who is responsible for what, again, trying to understand and be very explicit with, you know, where my role starts and yours ends. So there's not that ambiguity. I, those are the things that I kind of look for when I'm reviewing bylaws. That's awesome. Well, I think that there's, I mean, obviously on a case by case basis, but really making sure that what you're signing up for is clear and it's again, going back to the ambiguity. Can I stay on here? Can I not stay on here? Like what is expected of me and being able to have that clearly outlined. And, and that was a big thing that I learned as a, as a young consultant and young sort of participant on projects is like, okay, where does the scope begin and end? Because scope creep is one of those things that'll you know, break your brain, break your bank and all of that. So I'm sure that we could go on for hours and hours talking about board stuff. So I hopefully we get an opportunity to do that again. Where can people get a hold of you, connect if, if they want and, and learn more about what you're up to? Or invite you on their board if they're in Pennsylvania <laughs> or nationally. I'm always happy to talk to people. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm at, you know, I think it's Lauren G. Harrell. So you can look me up. I know on the posts for uh, the show that we're doing today, I know you've tagged me in those posts as well. I'm happy to connect with people and talk about, uh, you know, your board experiences, any of the issues you've run into. I'm kind of a governance geek, so always happy to chat boards. That's awesome, Lauren. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's oh, been such a blast. Me. I really Likewise. look forward to talking again. Thank you so much.
Ladies and gentlemen, folks, my guest today has been Lauren Harrell, who is the director and head of commodities at Chatham Financial, a seasoned board person, and just a great gal all around. So thanks again, Laura. It's been such a blast. Likewise. Thank you so much. We'll see you. Thanks for joining us, everybody. If you enjoyed today's episode and interview, be sure to let us know in the chat, subscribe, like, and really, if you are developing your board, if you're on a board, you're on a leadership team, and you want to build more guardrails, safety, please send them this podcast because I think they'll enjoy it. So once again, thank you, Lauren. My name is Anthony Taylor from SME Strategy. Appreciate you joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Before you go, I wanted to make sure that you knew about our signature course that will help you better align your team and get them bought into your strategic plan. It's presented really simply that whether you're a seasoned veteran or brand new to strategic planning, it'll help you better understand it, it'll help your team think more strategically, and it'll help you better prioritize and set goals. Ultimately, it's going to give you a plan that you can execute successfully. If you have no idea how many plans that I see that look good, but are missing key components to make them successful, and we cover all of those missteps in the course. On top of all the video training, you'll get access to all of our workbooks and access to our knowledge base and community. The course is only $4.95, and you can get instant access to all of the videos, plus you can use the code PODCAST for $100 off. Course comes with a 100% money back guarantee. If you don't get value from the course, let us know and we'll give you all of your money back. So go to smestrategy.net slash course, use the code podcast for $100 off. And I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to support you and your team in getting alignment and moving your strategic plan forward. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time.